It is Friday night. And we are on the verge of finding out the answer to a question that has been hanging over this country for eight years. Can anyone or anything stop Donald Trump from lying to the American public? We are learning new details about a request from special counsel Jack Smith, who is asking a D.C. federal court to restrict Trump's public comments about that case ahead of the trial, which is scheduled for March 4th of next year. Smith's team writes in this filing, since the grand jury returned an indictment in this case, the defendant has repeatedly and widely disseminated public statements attacking the citizens of the District of Columbia, the court, prosecutors and prospective witnesses. Through his statements, the defendant threatens to undermine the integrity of these proceedings and prejudice the jury pool. Put simply, those involved in the criminal justice process who read and hear the defendant's disparaging and inflammatory messages from court personnel to prosecutors to witnesses to potential jurors may reasonably fear that they could be the next targets of the defendant's attacks. The special counsel then goes on to cite a laundry list of Trump's social media posts and public comments disparaging anyone and anything related to his various indictments. The prosecution cites Trump's vague but ominous all-caps threat the day after his arraignment, warning, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. For the record, Trump's campaign claimed that that statement was about his political opponents. Okay. Prosecutors cite Trump's various attacks on Judge Tanya Chutkin herself, the, the person overseeing Trump's 2020 election case in federal court, who he has called a fraud dressed up as a judge, a radical Obama hack, and a biased Trump-hating judge. The prosecution cites Trump's attacks on the city of Washington, D.C., which Trump has called a filthy and crime-ridden district that is over 95% anti-Trump. And the prosecution cites Trump's repeated attacks on, well, the prosecution and the special counsel himself. Okay, so if the judge, Judge Chutkin, chooses to grant the prosecution's motion here, it could mean that Donald J. Trump will be legally prohibited from his chosen strategy to undermine institutions and sow doubt and resentment and escape accountability. That strategy being the strategy of flooding the airwaves with false, inflammatory, and derogatory statements. Now, this unredacted motion from Jack Smith's team was released today, but it was actually filed 10 days ago. And that means that Trump and his lawyers have known all along, and especially in the last 10 days, that his public comments were going to come under scrutiny from the court. Yet, both unsurprisingly and unbelievably, Trump has continued throughout the last days and the last 10 days to make wild and irresponsible and possibly legally perilous public statements. This is Trump talking to conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt last week. And you're confident on these cases. You don't think you're going to be behind a uh, defendant table throughout the entire campaign, crippled and unable to campaign. If I am, if I am, it's going to show what a fake deal it all is. It's all fake. It's all it's all just fake stuff. Do you want it televised in order Uh, to interfere with the election? This was election interference at the highest level. Here he was just yesterday with an interview with another conservative broadcaster, Megyn Kelly. And I will note, just for everybody listening at home, that this interview includes some very strange video edits that we are not responsible for. Take a listen. 
We have a deranged guy named Jack Smith who's been overturned at the Supreme Court a number of times. Can you talk to me about all of the different prosecutions? These aren't prosecutions. These aren't indictments. These are Biden indictments. This is a crooked politician. And he said, indict my political opponent. Even today, while responding on social media to this unsealed motion, Trump again referred to the special counsel as deranged. Twice. And all of this, the lies and the allegations and the threats, are presumably going to factor into the judge's decision on this. The question is, can the court actually stop Donald Trump from attacking the people who might put him in jail? Can anything? Joining me now is the Washington Post columnist Philip Bump and former federal prosecutor Joyce Vance. Oh, on a Friday night. Thank you for joining me, guys. I, Joyce, first of all, it's wonderful to see you in person. Um, I... What is what practically is the special counsel asking the court to do here? So here's the problem. You know, and I know that when Trump calls Jack Smith deranged, you know, so what? Right. Well, the problem it's, is it's become the norm. So it, yes. it has. And I, I and I worry, frankly, that we're a little bit too immune to that. But there's a big wide jury pool out there yeah. um, in D.C., down in Florida. The problem is people who aren't following carefully, but who may be called to jury service. And, and what do they take away from these sorts of tweets and comments? And so the judge has shown some sensitivity to prejudice to the jury pool mm-hmm. over time. That seems like a huge concern for everybody involved in this. Philip, asking Donald Trump to not call, for example, Jack Smith deranged is like asking a very hungry toddler not to reach into the cookie jar, right? I mean, it seems impossible That this will it's clearly not the the threat of it is not cowing him. And it it seems almost antithetical to his brand as a politician at this point. Do you think I mean, what is your expectation in terms of how this affects his campaigning? Well, I think uh, I think that fundamentally, if it could be pressed upon him that this does him harm, Mm -hmm. he may scale it back. I mean, there are ways in which he can say this. I, I think it's possible. We've seen him do some checking of himself in the past, not to a broad extent, but you know, this is really... I'm sorry to interrupt, but what is the best example of that? Uh, You see, now you're putting me on the spot. I just, I I have this intuitive sense that this has occurred. There are moments where, like, there was a a one-week stretch where he said, allege, used the word allege in some of his rants. But in terms of real behavioral change... No, this is fair. Yeah, I mean, he's never been held to account, right? This is what this is what we're really talking about. No one's really ever held him to account. And the thing that I found most striking, actually, about the filing was its recognition that he does this for political purposes. Right at the top, the line that is drawn is between his attacking the people in these cases and his inciting people yeah. before January 6th, yeah. right? He, they are recognizing that he is doing this because he sees the political strategy as his legal strategy. I think that's very smart and correct. And I think that's the important thing that they're trying to tamp down is making sure that it is clear that they are also cognizant that that's what he's doing. I do wonder when we talk about the incentives to behave himself. Judge Chutkin at the outset of this, uh, at the beginning of this process said, I may decide to move up the trial effectively depending on how you behave yourself. Um, Do you think that's a possibility here? So here's the problem. How far is the judge prepared to go to enforce her, her order It would be, I think, difficult if she decided, for instance, to put him in custody. That's something that you can do. Issue a complete gag order. You can't talk about this case at all. That would be difficult to do because he is a political candidate and we protect political speech in this country. 
So I think, you know, what you point to, this notion that she can speed up the trial, she can do it some, she can't go too far, where she would run the risk of creating an issue on appeal for Trump. Yeah. Violation of my due process rights that he could use if he's convicted. I mean, March 6th is really soon, Joyce. She is very limited in what she can do here. That's why this, this gag order that the government is proposing, which is very limited in scope, very, very narrow, it essentially says you can't say bad things about witnesses. You can't say things that endanger courthouse staff. That may be the best she can do. The question is, what do you do if Trump violates it? Well, right. And also, I would think that there's this sort of martyr complex here, too. Donald Trump would almost, it would seem, Philip, relish a gag order because then he could tweet about a gag order. And in the same way that he's like, I need one more indictment to become the president again in 2024. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, anything that happens, he's going to try and spin as being politically advantageous. The entire framing of this is his framing to his base that they're doing this to me because they're coming after you, which has been very effective and successful. You know, even though to an objective observer, it's sort of baffling, but everything is framed in the same context. Everything is framed through this political lens. And yes, I mean, whatever happens, he will be able to spin it. And I just want to point out, I thought of an example for before. He wore a mask one day. Yes. Remember during the COVID pandemic? Did, he had COVID when he wore the mask, no, no, right? Well, he was it oh, yeah, so two days. No, because he actually wore it one during. This I is mean, point, right. But, 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 but I mean, one, one, it's almost as if he's daring the judge and the prosecution, the fact that they this 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 request was filed 10 days ago. And in the t- and Trump's lawyers knew very well that it had to do with Trump's speech. And yet you saw how Trump curtailed his speech, which is to say not at all. Um, Joyce, I, I would love to get your thoughts on other comments Trump has made in interviews that could potentially exacerbate his legal peril. Um, this is uh, this is I think this is sound one. Yes. Uh, Trump talking about a a subpoena and the documents in the Mar-a-Lago case. This is with Megyn Kelly. Let's take a listen. All I know is I'm allowed to have those documents. But but once you get a subpoena, you have to turn them over. I know this. I don't even know that because I have the right to have those documents. Did you catch that? I know that. He admits that a subpoena means you have to turn over the documents. And then immediately in the next press says, I don't know this. You know what I see happening there? His lawyers talk to him about what he yes. couldn't, couldn't do. The first phrase comes out of his mouth and he thinks, oh, dear, I'm in trouble with the lawyers. And so he shifts gear. This is something that he's so used to doing. You, you know, truth is no barrier, right? So Trump says one thing and does says something that's diametrically opposing. He just doesn't usually do it in two back-to-back <laughs> sentences. Yes. And this is glaring. And someplace at DOJ, there is a young prosecutor or someone who is taking all of these clips and they're making a big book of them in case Donald Trump really does take the witness stand in one of these cases. The cross-examination will be lethal. Yeah, well, and this is all admissible. Everything he's saying to Megyn Kelly and Hugh Hewitt is theoretically admissible. You know, I think on cross-examination, if he makes a statement and something that he said on television contradicts it, he's opened the door and it all comes in. Okay, and then, Philip, there's the political peril here of his his comments regarding the impeachment inquiry and what it's what is actually at the root of that. Can we play that? I believe that is uh, sound two. Nancy Pelosi, crazy Nancy, said, we're going to impeach him. I think had they not done it to me, then I'm very popular in the region. They like me and I like them, the Republican Party. Uh, Perhaps you wouldn't have it being done to them. Admitting that the impeachment inquiry into President Biden and his son is really retribution for the impeachment proceedings against Trump. If you're a House Republican, that is not something that's not commentary that you necessarily need right now. 
No, yeah, agreed. I mean, obviously, part of the goal here is to, from Donald Trump's perspective, and remember, he's been advocating, uh, to, to some extent, we know that his allies have been advocating explicitly, to have these expunged, to have these impeachments somehow wiped off of the record, right? He sees these as black marks, whether or not he's willing to admit it. And so what he's doing here is he's basically saying, that was all nonsense, and therefore we are right. responding, right? So all it is is it's about diminishing what happened to him less than it is about what is being uh, happening to President Biden. Right. And it's also basically burnishing his own, an attempt to burnish his own record while kneecapping the guys in Congress right. who are effectively his foot soldiers. Right. I mean, if that's not the Trumpiest thing that you can do, and all on television or whatever that was with Megyn Kelly, weird video edits. Uh, Philip Bump, thank you for your wisdom, your thoughts, your, your person in the flesh on this Friday night. Joyce Vance, please stick around because it is a very, very big Friday for all of us here at 30 Rock. Because the sisters-in-law, Barbara McQuaid, Jill Wine-Banks, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and of course, Joyce Vance, they are also, all of them, here in New York in a major reunion. They said it couldn't be done. Here we have some of the sharpest legal minds in America on television, and we have so very much to talk about this evening. Trump's latest legal jeopardy, the timing of all of these multiple trials, and whether Trump may be taken off the ballot before the 2024 election. That is all coming up. Stay with us. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. In addition to the potential new restrictive order we're learning about tonight in the federal criminal case against Donald Trump over the 2020 election, there's a bunch of other stuff happening in the wide world of Trump trials. Today, Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee ordered subpoenas to be sent to 900 prospective jurors for the first trial in D.A. Fonnie Willis's RICO case. Jury selection in that trial for Trump lawyers Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell, that starts on October 23rd. Now, Donald Trump himself is not going to be tried on that date, but he is almost certainly paying close attention to jury selection here. And that is because a criminal trial requires a unanimous verdict from the jury. And all Trump or any of his co-defendants will ultimately need here is one juror to vote not guilty. And even though Fulton County, where the jury pool will be drawn from, is so deep blue that Trump lost to Biden by 47 percentage points, even there, there is hope for Trump. If you remember last week, upon the release of the report by the special purpose grand jury that recommended indicting Trump in the first place, we got to see the breakdown of how those special grand jurors actually voted. And every time Donald Trump's name was mentioned in that report, 
there was at least one juror who voted not to indict. Joining me now, I am so honored to announce, are the co-hosts of the Sisters-in-Law podcast, former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, Barb McQuaid, former U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama, Joyce Vance, litigator-turned-journalist Kimberly Atkins-Dorr, and former Department of Justice prosecutor who, of course, worked on Watergate, the great Jill Wine-Banks. The Sisters-in-Law, I feel like a chill running down my spine. It's like historic, all the brain power at this table. Mine is adjacent. Um, friends, Barb, let me just start with you. The idea that they're going to have to find a jury in this trial on its own is difficult, but multiple juries for the presumed multiple trials we're going to have in Fulton County. How much of an uphill climb is that? It is an uphill climb, but I think one thing that's important to understand is you don't have to find jurors who've never heard of Donald Trump yeah. before, right? That would be impossible. But you do have to find jurors who will agree to decide the case based solely on what they hear in court, not what they've heard in the media or what they've discussed with their friends. And so those will be the kinds of questions they're asking jurors. Not so much what have you heard and what do you know, but can you be fair in this case? And they'll ask a number of questions to delve into that because I think that that might be the biggest hazard to Jack Smith, frankly, or in Fulton County to Fonnie Willis uh, is a holdout juror. The evidence may be strong, but yeah. if you have just that one, as you mentioned, that we saw in the grand jury process, uh, that could tank the whole thing. So that's what the government will be looking to avoid. Yeah, Kimberly, I wonder how you read that the, the special purpose grand jury sort of results, if you will, where there's one no vote every wow. time Trump's name is mentioned and whether I mean, legally speaking, is that unusual? And what kind of how did you interpret that in, in terms of what lies ahead for jury selection? Yeah, it's not unusual. And it's not, it doesn't indicate necessarily that this is a Trump supporter. Mm -hmm. We've had other cases where there were people on juries that that Trump went before who were supporters, but who still found yes. him liable uh, in the case, for example, in the E. Jean Carroll case, still found him liable. So the, the fact that uh, Fulton County is mostly blue isn't isn't the goal either. Somebody can be a supporter or an opponent of a political character, but still be able to look at the evidence put forward, still know that the prosecutor has the burden of proving it, and still make that determination at the end. I think the biggest thing here is time. Yeah. In Fulton County, Funny Willis has another RICO case, and the jury selection has been going on for months and months and months without anybody being seated yet. If she is going against the clock, that's what I have a big question about, whether she'll able be able to even see seat a jury before the election, let alone get a trial going. Right. Well, and multiple potential trials. Jill, how, I mean, there, I think Judge McAfee has said, oh, we're going to finish jury selection by early November. Does that seem overly ambitious? Well, with a Speedy Trial Act request, they have to go to trial by the time that was set by the courts, uh, by the law. And so he has said, I'm going to stay here longer than normal hours if I need to, and I'm going to restrict the number of questions you can ask, and that's it. So he is intent on getting the jury seated and sworn before November 4th in order to start the trial. Well, and I guess to Barb's point, I mean, knowing what the jury's by it, potential biases are and getting to the bottom of that at the outset seems imperative. So if you're working in an abbreviated fashion, do you worry that there may not be a full plumbing of the depths, as it were? Yes, but I am one of those people who really believes in the jury system. Mm -hmm. And I would turn to the Manafort case where there was a very strong Trump supporter who said after the trial, talking to the press, 
I believe everything Donald Trump says, but I was sworn as a juror to make my decision based on the evidence I heard in this courtroom, and I voted to convict him on every single count because the evidence showed it. So I think that people will take seriously their oath. Now, that doesn't mean you aren't going to have some creepy guy who, or woman who says, I'm going to not vote for conviction of him no matter what to themselves, but doesn't admit any yes. of the things to the lawyers questioning him. So it is a risk. It, it's definitely Especially in these polarized times where Donald Trump is such a divisive figure and people's allegiance to him is based in large part on emotion. And, a, and, a, and, a, yeah. and, and a, it's a construct nobody can seem to break. Um, Joyce, there is concern about the jury selection and jury um, tainting all over the place. And in, in part of the order that uh, the motion that the special, special counsel filed that was unsealed in part mm-hmm. today, we learned that they're concerned about Donald Trump's defense team polling the jury. I'll read an excerpt. Because of the potential prejudice that jury polling may cause, the government respectfully requests that the court set forth a process to review efforts by either party to engage in contacts with members of the jury venere in this district. I apologize for the Latin. It's just in there. Undertaken for the purpose of discussing case-specific facts, including any pre-trial survey, poll, focus group, or similar study. I read that and I was like, what are you you talking about? What are you talking about? Poll, survey, focus group with potential jury members. What is that? Yeah, so jury selection has become a matter of science, or at least of social science. And in these high-value cases, there are companies that will go out and they will poll communities to get a profile of what juries might look like. And it can be a fairly intrusive process if you've got enough funding to do it, right? It might be telephone surveys. There are different ways of doing it. So the judge has done something really smart here. For one thing, she's put this time constraint on it. If you're going to be to poll, you've got to be done 30 days before trial begins. That gives people time to get a little bit of distance from the experience. But she's also said that they can only use any kind of jury science if she signs off in advance. And I assume that she will have some very strict parameters that she'll impose. Uh, Just to be clear, Barb, the reason they might be focus grouping a jury pool is to make the case that there's no way Trump can get a fair trial in Washington, D.C. Is that sort of the end game here in theory? I think that could be part of it. So in a general case, it might just be we want to get a feel for what the, the people in this community think about this case. We might shape our defense in a certain way, depending on the kinds of answers we get from these people. But to your point, I think the concern is they're actually going to taint the jury. Pool. Right. One of the things that's asked for in that request is that there be no suggestion of what the facts are in the case, because you could imagine Donald Trump injecting false facts into the potential jury pool. And they don't remember whether they heard it in court or where they heard it. And they end up acquitting based on some facts that aren't even part of the case. But I also think, to your point, that one of the goals might be to say, look, judge, we we pulled this community yeah. and they're all against Donald Trump. So we should change venue from Washington, D.C. to some other community to West is, Virginia, where he's viewed more favorably. Well, well, can I just say it feels more it's like it's more the latter than the former because yes. Donald Trump's out there tweeting about Washington, D.C., 
Full disclosure, my hometown is a 95% anti-Trump, filthy, crime-ridden hole. That does not seem to be like someone who's going to spend any capital trying to convince the people, the good men and women and people of Washington, D.C., that Donald Trump is is innocent. It sounds like someone who wants to get the hell out of Dodge. Right. It's somebody who wants to taint the jury pool (laughs) so that they can say, oh, I can't get a fair trial. I live in Washington, D.C., so I can say not only is that the goal, but the people in Washington, Washington, D.C. are also pretty savvy and they really don't care what Donald Trump may post on social media about them. They have the ability to put things aside. And listen, polling of a jury can try to find out so many things. If you've ever been on a jury, it sometimes doesn't have anything to do with what somebody thinks about them. I've been on a jury once where we were reached a unanimous decision except for one mm-hmm. who understood that the, the decision had to go the way that it did, not guilty, but just was like, but I think he did it. But do you think the prosecutor made the case? No. But I think he did. It could be a holdout can be for any reason. So this is a big case for prosecutors. As you pointed out, they have to shoot and not miss. And so the more information that they can get to prepare, the better. And the more the defense can get in order to prepare their case, the better, too. So, so it's, the, it's not necessarily nefarious. The, and the prosecution could do this jury polling right. to it, find out information. I had only thought of it sort of asymmetrically right. as yeah. a defense move, Jill. It, absolutely. The prosecution can. And I think that he's already, Trump is already trying to taint the jury pool. He has, at least in Mar-a-Lago, said, oh, I will testify that I absolutely did not order any of the surveillance tapes to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. That's clearly an attempt to get to potential jurors. And so I think, you know, if we go back to the uh, case of having him a gag order, a little teeny bit of a gag order, which I don't think is enough right now. I think there has to be a lot more detail put into it to prevent him from doing that kind of thing. Yeah, a few more sticks. Uh, I think <laughs> the carrots have not worked. All right, we are going to take a quick break, but the sisters-in-law remain in the building. Coming up, there is a multi-state push to keep Donald Trump off the ballot in 2024 using the 14th Amendment. Is it legit? The sisters-in-law are going to weigh in on that. But first, we have this. We have to own even the darkest parts of our past, understand them, and vow never to repeat them. It was an extraordinary speech from Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson today at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. That's coming up next. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Why? With all that's going on at the court and in the world right now, would you choose this moment as your first visit to this great state? And I guess the honest answer is, I felt in my spirit 
that I had to come. In Birmingham, Alabama today, Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson stood in the pulpit of the 16th Street Baptist Church. The justice was there to commemorate the 60th anniversary of the day the Ku Klux Klan bombed the building and killed four young black girls who were getting ready for church in the ladies' restroom. In her remarks today, Justice Jackson honored those four children, and she spoke in personal terms about her own background and the reaction to her appointment to the highest court in the land. All of the attention to my race and my gender and the historical nature of my appointment has caused me to develop an intense yearning to better understand why. Why has it taken 232 years and 115 prior appointments for a black woman to serve on the Supreme Court? But when a Supreme Court justice speaks, her words are never just personal. And in this case, they also revealed Justice Jackson's vision of what makes a more perfect union. If we're going to continue to move forward as a nation, we cannot allow concerns about discomfort to displace knowledge, truth, or history. We cannot forget because the uncomfortable lessons are often the ones that teach us the most about ourselves. Those words in Alabama conjured images of what's happening all around the country right now, especially in the neighboring state of Florida, where the movement to ban books and censor lessons about history is front and center. Justice Jackson today, in paying tribute to the four girls who were denied the chance to grow up, made a specific choice to be unvarnished in her criticism and deeply personal in her rhetoric. She asked questions of herself while pushing the country to do better. In a few weeks, Justice Jackson will take her seat on the bench as the Supreme Court begins a new term, and she will undoubtedly articulate her vision for the best version of America through the rule of law. We'll have more on that when we come back with the Sisters-in-Law. Stay with us. In addition to all of Donald Trump's legal troubles in criminal and civil court, there is a whole other series of efforts underway to keep him off the ballot in several states using the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, specifically using Section 3 of that amendment, which which states that any elected official who engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or has given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof should not be able to hold federal or state office again. Lawsuits filed in Colorado last week and Minnesota this week aim to force elections officials in those states to keep Trump's name off their ballots in 2024. Similar suits are forthcoming in other states across the country. Still with me at the table are the co-hosts of the Sisters-in-Law podcast, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and Jill Wine-Banks. Um, Barb, let me just ask you about the sort of I'm, is standing the, the issue that I should start with, perhaps maybe in terms of Minnesota is eight Minnesota voters suing the Minnesota secretary of state. The lawsuit is filed by I think it's called free speech for people, if that's correct. Do you think that this case can be successful in a way in, just in terms of going through the, the 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 judicial process in a way that, for example, the lawsuit in Florida was not. That failed entirely. Yeah, it's really difficult to know. This provision has obviously been in the Constitution since the 14th Amendment was passed. 
post-Civil War era, aiming at the, the rebels of the South. Um, but it's never really been tested. And so the standing question is one that is open. Do citizens who say that they've been adversely affected or would be adversely affected if Donald Trump appears on the ballot? It's an unknown question. The biggest question, I think, is whether this is self-executing. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there yeah. some other provision Congress has to pass before this can happen? And what's the mechanism? Can you just file a lawsuit? Who gets to make a finding that they engaged in insurrection or they provided comfort? So I think the courts are going to have to sort this out. A real question is whether there's time to sort it out before we get to the 2024 election. Well, right. And, and just to talk about that, that idea, Michael Ludig and Larry Tribe had co-wrote an op-ed in The Atlantic where they basically said the whole thing self-executing, which means you don't need a convict. Donald Trump doesn't need to be convicted of aiding and abetting those who would try to seek to over, what is it, insur- who are guilty of insurrection. Yeah. Um, I'll read an excerpt. The disqualification clause in Section 3 operates independently of any such criminal proceedings and indeed also independently of impeachment proceedings and of congressional legislation. Section 3 requires no legislation, criminal conviction, or other judicial action in order to effectuate its command. That is, Section 3 is self-executing. They sound so definitive, Kimberly. They do. And I happen to know both uh, Professor Tribe and Judge Ludig, and I actually think that they're right. But I come to a different conclusion on this, in part because of what Barb said. That may be true, and that is my reading of the Constitution, too. But that's not how secretaries of states act. They don't read the Constitution and decide this is what they're going to do. They need a court decision. They need a statute. They need a law to follow in order to do that. And we don't have that, even if the most learned scholars uh, that we know believe that that exists. I also have a different concern. I have a few. One is that (laughs) this does get to the Supreme Court in time and the Supreme Court issues a decision that we don't want. I don't necessarily, bad law. law. I don't want necessarily want this litigated. I also fear, given how divided our nation is, if the Supreme Court essentially decides the next election, I don't know what that would do to the nation. I would prefer for the voters to go to the polls Mm -hmm. and decide definitively the next election rather than have people, many of whom don't trust the Supreme Court as an institution. We talk about that all the time. Time, making this final decision and having the electorate feel like that decision was taken away from them, I think that that can do a lot of damage. Well, yeah, the political implications of it are fairly extreme. But before we get, I mean, you know, b- before that would even happen, Jill, it's the question, these secretaries of states that they're targeting in many cases are Democrats because they think they're going to yeah. get a more favorable outcome there. It is, as Kimberly points out, asking a lot of an elected official to, to take, you know, a former president and would be president again off the ballot in that state. And yet January 6th, everybody saw it play out. And it's pretty clearly worded in Section 3. I agree with you. And I, the thing I worry about, though, is the next time it will be the Republicans going to Republican secretaries of state. The case in Colorado is stronger because they have a special statute there that says the citizens can do this. So they have standing, they have a right to do it. And as you say, this is a unique set of circumstances. This is something that every single American saw. Now, 30 million of them misinterpreted it as nothing bad happened. So I, I don't know what would happen politically if this goes forward, even though most of America would say, Definitely, he engaged in 
a crime. He engaged in insurrection. He gave aid and comfort just by not telling them to go home. He gave aid and comfort to them. So I think he's guilty. I think politically it could lead to really bad stuff. Yeah. Joyce, where do you stand on this? Because I think that there's a you hear about these lawsuits happening across the country. And it's so it's such a break glass emergency mechanism that I think a lot of people have dismissed it as never going to happen. This is just only going to be used in an extreme case, although we think we're also pretty extreme. (laughs) But they are. I mean, the fact of the matter is people are filing these lawsuits across the country and there are more to come. There's New, New, New Hampshire. I believe Ohio is on the list. There are a number of states where there is an authentic movement to try and use this that is going to make its way into the courts. Look, I think that's right. And textualists who have traditionally been the conservatives on the Supreme Court who believe that you should read the language in a statute and follow it where it's explicit have a very good point that the 14th Amendment is self-executing. But we've got competing values here. We've got, on the one hand, the constitutional principles And opposed to that, we have this notion that the people should elect their leaders and that that decision should not be taken away from them. And ultimately, I think that ends up in this situation, militating in favor of letting the people decide. It's fraught. We are in a dangerous moment in this country. It's up to the Americans to go and vote. Yeah, Kimberly, I will just say, you know, having you guys all here, contextualizing the moment that we're in, every day we talk about law. I don't I did not go to law school. The whole country is getting its law degree because this person, Donald Trump, is stress testing many institutions, but our judicial system in particular. It, it is it is just such an extraordinary time to see the president of the United States maybe have to have a gag order because he keeps threatening witnesses and prosecutors entire cities. We're talking about using constitutional amendments to disqualify him from running for president again. I just wonder if, you know, all of it is terra incognito and and how how do how do you as a legal mind process uh, an immediate future that no one can even begin to determine where no one knows what's going to happen? Yeah, I think even the four of us who studied the law and spent our careers focused on it didn't really realize how fragile the guardrails for our democracy are and how much of it is guarded by norms and not actually by executable things. And Donald Trump has, as you said, stress tests every single one of those guardrails to the point that we are sitting here talking about things that are usually, you know, reserved for law school classrooms. What does this provision of the Constitution mean? That's usually not where the rubber meets the road in practicing law. But this is how far we're stretched out. So we are figuring this out as we go. We're bringing the, the public with us to try to educate everyone. I think people should be watching closely, not just for the civics lesson, but but this affects all of us. This is our democracy. This is our future. Well, and there's no better resource for all of than the Sisters in Law podcast, Barbara McQuaid, Joyce Fans, Kimberly Atkins-Store, and Jill Wine-Banks. It is indispensable. Sisters in Law, the podcast, especially in this current era of Trump trial madness. Thank you all for coming to New York City. It's a treat to have you, an honor to have you. Thank you for your time. When we come back, the United Auto Workers are on strike and Donald Trump sees a political opportunity. What Democrats and Biden might do about that coming up next. Record corporate profits, which they have, should be shared by record contracts for the UAW. 
That was President Biden earlier today supporting the demands of the United Auto Workers Union, which is now on strike, pushing for higher wages from three of America's biggest car companies. For decades, Biden has touted himself as one of the most pro-union politicians in Washington. And that stands in fairly direct contrast to all of his potential Republican opponents in 2024. But somehow his most likely opponent, former President Trump, who just this week refused to pick a side in these negotiations and told my colleague Kristen Welker that he thinks the UAW workers are being sold down the river by their union leadership. Somehow, Donald Trump manages to get support from union workers without actually supporting them himself. In 2016, Trump got more support from union households than any Republican candidate since Ronald Reagan. And in 2020, the UAW estimates that a third of its members voted for Trump. What exactly is happening here? Joining me now is Tim Miller, former communications director for the 2016 Jeb Bush campaign and writer at large at The Bulwark. Tim, thank you for being here. How how important is is the way each man sort of weighs in on this UAW strike? How is how important is that? How critical is that to the 2024 election? It's a lot more critical than some of the other stuff that we talk about, um, you know, in the daily news cycle, because this is a crucial swing demographic. I, you know, the, the you know, working class white folks, the, the famed Obama Trump voters, they're going to be a big swing demographic in 2024. Not the only one, but a key one. And both men are cross pressured. Right. Joe Biden. I think there's this feeling that not him, maybe, but the Democratic Party is culturally, you know, not in line with where a lot of, of workers are fair, fair or not. There's that that sense is out there. But economic. Joe Biden, as you heard in that clip, is much more in line with them. On Trump, it's the inverse, right? Like culturally, Trump has kind of spoken to that community stereotypically, not every person, but stereotypically. But economically, there's no substance to it. Trump screwed over workers in the private sector. He's on the side of corporations and big businesses on economic policy. I saw a bunch of tweets from right wingers today mocking the auto workers for their demands. So, you know, they both, uh, you know, kind of have the inverse issue and need to figure out how to address you know, uh, the the area where they're falling short with those voters if they want to win them up. I would argue their ability to speak to the, exactly these kinds of Americans, you know, blue collar, non-college educated white men is is why they may end up being the nominees. Right. Biden's skill with this group of the American electorate and Trump's it's it's this thing that has been in large part determinative of the party's nomination process. I wonder what you think of, of Biden and 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 how he sort of tries to keep these people on his side with the cross pressures of his climate agenda, where electric vehicles are a huge part of that. Yeah, this is a huge question, right? And and I think that for Biden, that is right. It was this group, in addition to older uh, black voters in particular, um, that I think what w- carried him across. And I think that Joe Biden's pitch is that he could kind of minimize Democratic losses with this group, right? That there are going to be some issues on, on you know, where there are differences on green, uh, on climate in particular. Um, and, and so that where Joe Biden, you know, the Scranton Joe element, the fact that he's been on the side of unions, you know, maybe he can kind of mitigate some of the losses and in, in, with a group that is, is, let's just be honest, been moving the Republicans direction for quite a few cycles now. I do wonder, I mean, the, the thing about Trump that's, Trump that's so singular, no one else in the Republican Party has the resonance that he does with these folks. Do we have the Nikki Haley on the tractor? I mean, it is laughable to think that anyone that votes for Trump in this group is somehow going to go for Nikki Haley or even Ron DeSantis. 
Can you talk a little yeah, bit about Ron DeSantis just yeah. looks like the corporate boss. He just <laughs> smells and looks like the corporate boss. You know, he there's nothing he can say. You know, you can just sense that he's on the other side of this fight. So yeah, Trump is definitely unique in that in that in that degree. Well, and it's to some degree why they can't seem to quit Donald Trump, right? Because there is an understanding that no one else has the, if for lack of a better term, magic sauce with this key part of the electorate that he does. And thus they are saddled with him for the time being. Tim Miller, my friend, thank you for closing out this Friday night with me. I appreciate your time and wisdom as always. Thanks, Alex. That is our show for this evening.